Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series in Habakkuk. If you would like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Well, uh, obviously there's, there's tournaments that are going on this weekend. You guys have probably seen this on the news and some different things. And so I wanted to take just a little bit of time and and share more about my personal story and how God used golf in my life to really bring me closer to him. And some of you have heard little bits and pieces here, but I want to just take an opportunity to expand on that a little bit. I grew up in a, in a very, what I would consider a divided home. Uh, my parents were together until my dad died several years ago, um, married, and, and it was uh, very much a, a wholesome American dream type of a home. I never doubted that my parents loved me or um, that they didn't have my best interests in mind, but my mom was very much a strong, charismatic Pentecostal. My dad was a sleepy Catholic. He was one of these twice-a-year-going-to-church type of guys, and, and so I was kind of caught in this mix of all of it. And they did a whole lot of things really good for me in my upbringing and things that I'm so grateful for even today, but also some other things that, are, that were just difficult for me to live through and to manage as a teenager and going up even into my college years, becoming a, a young adult. Um, but one of the things that they did was they always kept me involved in sports. And sports was my parents' way of, of saying, hey, we want you to do something constructive with your life so that you don't get involved in all these other things that would otherwise tempt you and destroy your life. And, and so by the time I was in high school, sophomore in high school, I had lettered in, in three varsity sports. <clears throat> I was never an off-season that I experienced. We went from golf to baseball to basketball to track, and it was just football was in there, soccer was in there for a time, but, but nothing really grabbed my heart as much as golf did. And it was, it really was, God used it as an outlet uh, for my parents, for me, to keep me out of a lot of things that I would otherwise have got into. And I got so involved in golf, and I liked it so much that I competed at a, at a pretty high level in golf. I learned a whole lot from it. I got involved in the business side of it. I worked at a golf course. I spent my summers out on a golf course because I could play for free and, and hit balls for free and do all these other things. I really did, I took advantage of it. But by the time I was in high school, uh, what happened was everything that I knew about life, everything that I knew about myself, my identity, my significance, my security, all of it was built up in golf and how well I was doing at it, how well I was enjoying it, and how good I was competing at it even. And over and over again, what I began to experience is I was a, we weren't like a 6A school. Wisconsin, the divisions are opposite. So the 6As are the 1As in Wisconsin, basically. It wasn't a 6A school. It was more like a 5A for comparatively to Oklahoma here. But man, I was competing with the best of them. And I, and I really, I couldn't hack it good enough, excuse the pun, Brad, uh, to play at a Division I collegiate level at the time. And so I've, I found myself, no matter how hard I practiced, no matter how much I played, no matter how much I grinded it out on my swing, I still couldn't compete with the big dogs. And I began to see this like defeated perspective on life. I almost, almost gave up 
in many ways. I got involved working at this golf course, and it was a mentor of mine that I'm still in touch with today. Uh, taught me the game of golf, taught me the golf industry, the golf business, opened doors that would otherwise wouldn't have been open to me. Uh, very rebellious as a teenager during this time, and so it was easy for me just to go off to the golf course and spend my summers there because I didn't want to be home. I didn't want to be close to my parents. It brought me a lot of joy and satisfaction to do something that I just really enjoyed doing outside of the home. Um, so when I went off to college, I couldn't compete at a Division I college level, but my dad found this program for me that was, it was called the PGM, Professional Golf Management. And so you learned how the business side of the industry, you could be a professional at a course, you could be a teaching professional, you could own a store, you could do anything basically in the golf industry, you could uh, maintain the, land, the landscape at a golf course, do landscape management, that kind of stuff. I went and I pursued this career at Mississippi State University, and, it, and I thought this was it for me. All the years that I'd taken to learn the game of golf, all the time that I'd spent at a golf course, everything was coming together for me to really flourish in this position. And it just so happened that as I, as I look at the, just the time that, that took place and transpired in my life and in all the situations and all the people that I began to get acquainted with and to learn more about golf, more about myself, and more about my future career, all of it led me to Mississippi State University. I was born and raised in Wisconsin. I was 750 miles away from home, a 12-hour drive in a Pontiac Phoenix that was more like 11 and a half hours with stops. Um, it was just, it was, a, it was very life-shattering for me as a kid in Wisconsin to leave everybody, everything, all the culture, all my friendships, all my family, and basically start over at a completely different place in Starkville, Mississippi. It was so humbling in, in such a scary time in my life that it wasn't two weeks on the campus of Mississippi State University before I, I sat down on my dorm room bed and I was encouraged and challenged to read the Gospel of John. I was so broken. I was so humbled by leaving this previous life that I had in Wisconsin and coming to a place that didn't care about what I did in high school golf or high school sports. They didn't, they didn't know about me. They didn't know about my family. They didn't care about my friends. They weren't going to be around them anyway. They were miles and miles away. I had, nowhere, I had no car even my freshman year to go down there. Everything had just totally and completely rocked my world. And from an earthly perspective, I was convinced that I went down to Mississippi State University to, to learn how to hit a golf ball as far and as straight as I possibly could, to learn how to be in the golf business itself, and to really set myself up for success in the world. From a heavenly, from a spiritual perspective, God had a completely different plan. He knew that it was going to take me leaving all of that to humble myself, to bring me to an end of myself, to empty myself of all my self-will, self-confidence, independence, and autonomy. And before classes even started at Mississippi State University, I found myself 
speed reading through the Gospel of John and saying, there's something about this person, Jesus. I want that in my life. And I trusted Christ. And I look back on that. My, my dad was an unbeliever at the time. He would have said, Jared, you've got a great opportunity. Don't, don't mess this up. Uh, I'm, I'm laying out a red carpet for you to go forward for whatever you want to do in the golf business. From a, from a spiritual perspective, again, it was, it was the exact opposite. God brought me 750 miles away from my home and everything I knew that it might come to a point of dependence and repentance from my sin and turn to him in faith instead. I got paired up with this mentor. He was pastor and um, graduate of Dallas Seminary. He mentored me, taught me scripture, taught me the gospel, everything I could ever ask for from a spiritual mentor. I found him right there at Mississippi State. Never would have imagined any of that would have happened. And as I look back, I kind of consider and I, and I think about my life, I realize that no matter what happened to me in Wisconsin, no matter what the plans that I had for me in my life, God's plans were greater, more significant, bigger, and more unexpected than I would ever, ever realize until many years later, looking back and seeing that. John Piper recently read a, wrote a book. Uh, it's entitled Providence. And in it, I want to share this quote. It's a little bit longer, so bear with me here. He says, A nail sinks into a board because God planned for a hammer to hit it. A student makes an A on a test because God planned for the student to study. A jet flies from New York to Los Angeles because God planned for fuel to be available, wings to stay put, engines to thrust, and a pilot to know what he was doing. In none of these cases do we say that the cause was pointless. The hammer, the studying, the fuel, the wing, the engine, the pilot. It is part of the plan, of God's plan. And God used all of that time to draw me toward him. He had a bigger plan for my life than I had for myself, than my parents had, and that any of us could imagine or think. We're seeing uh, in Habakkuk, I hope you found it by now, we're seeing Habakkuk is a changed man. By the time we get to chapter 3, Habakkuk is a different person than he was when this book started. At the beginning of the book, Habakkuk has questions. By the end of the book, he has answers. At the beginning, Habakkuk has doubts. By the end, he has dependence and a strong dependence on God. At the beginning of the book, Habakkuk is fearful. By the end, his, mark, his life is marked by faith Instead, And I want to take the beginning of, of Habakkuk chapter 3 this morning, and I want to talk about faith, three elements of faith, as we see them worked out in this text. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20, through chapter 3, verse 7, you're going to see three things about faith. The strength of faith, the step of faith, and the stretch of faith. You're going to see three things in Habakkuk chapter 2, 20, verse 3, 7. The strength of faith, the step of faith, and the, and the stretch of faith. But it's a good time to stop and really, we're coming to a trans transitional mark at the book of Habakkuk and just show you exactly where we've been and where we're going. A super easy overview of the book of Habakkuk. You've got three chapters, three distinct marks as this book unfolds. Chapter one is all about a dialogue. 
It's between God and Habakkuk. Chapter 2 is a dirge. We read that. It's a song. It's a taunt, taunt song in Israel that was supposed to be sung to the Babylonians. And chapter 3 is a doxology. This book ends with a, a note of praise and rejoicing and hope, unlike any other part of the book. Remember, Habakkuk was the prophet that dared to question God. And he questioned God in the form of laments. First question he brings to God is, listen, why are you not working in our midst? The Babylonians are upon us. Can you please end this injustice? God answers that, and he says, I am working in, the, in your midst. I've raised up the Babylonians to bring justice to Judah and to Israel. And Habakkuk hears that, and he says, okay, God, but now I've got another question. The Babylonians, why in the world would you use this wicked pagan nation against your people and bring about all this death and destruction, disease, and whatever else they were going to experience as they went off into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians? And, and God says, he gives an answer to that as well. He says, the Babylonians are going to be judged. Leave the plan of the nations to me. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cover the world with my glory as water covers the sea. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14 is a central, central text. It's one of the reasons why TBC is so involved with missions, not only here in Tulsa, but across the world, because we see a plan for the nations that God has presented to us through his word, and you and I get to be a part of that. It's an amazing, amazing thing. So we've got this dialogue, question, answer, question, answer. Chapter two is this dirge. We saw this taunt song that had five verses, five woes from the Israelites to the Babylonians as they were taking them off into captivity, describing their sin and the condemnation, the judgment that they deserved because of it. And chapter three, it brings us all together in a doxology. It's a poem of praise. Really, the whole thing is a, is a prayer of praise as you read it. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Habakkuk says, Please, God, do not delay. Revive your work. Make it known now in our time. As he sees the Babylonians on his doorstep, Habakkuk wants God to work, to deliver, to rescue, to redeem now, immediately. Verses 3 through 7 in chapter 3 is this ancient poem that describes the powerful and terrifying appearance of the Lord God in all of his splendor and glory. These flashes of lightning, earthquakes, uh, trembling and plagues that, that come with the coming of the Lord in this context. In verses 8 through 15, God says he's going to do something new. It's actually something that's kind of old. Remember the exodus from Egypt? God's going to act in the same way. He's going to bring about a new exodus through his king. He's going to usher his people out of slavery yet again, out of Babylonian slavery. He's bring, going to bring about the perfect coming of the king. In, chapters, in chapter 3, verse 16 through 19, at the end is this, this great refrigerator verse of hope, of uh, joy, of pressing through hard times because God has a plan and a purpose behind it. It's a hopeful praise as we read through it. We're going to take just the next uh, two weeks after this one, and we're going to finish up chapter 3. 
But I want to start here with the strength of faith in chapter 2, verse 20. All right, look down at your text, Habakkuk 2, verse 20. If you haven't found Isaiah 46, too, you can turn back there. Habakkuk 2, verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Now, in order to understand 2, verse 20, you've got to go back in the context a little bit. Verse 19 and 18 were all about as the fifth woe, is the taunt song to the Babylonians from the Israelites about idolatry. The Babylonians were guilty idolaters. Israel, too, was guilty in their idolatry. They're both guilty of both covert and overt idolatry. The Babylonians had covert idols all over the place. They trusted and they looked to their military for safety and security. They built this huge evil empire that they thought would keep them safe from the world and would deliver them. They built this massive empire they had military and they had a strong power where they oppressed other people. And all of those things were idols in their hearts and in their lives. But the Babylonians were also guilty of covert, overt, excuse me, overt idolatry. It was an idolatry that was handheld idols that were worshipped, prayed to, bowed down to, and lifted up as gods in their life. I want you to turn back to Isaiah 46 and look at just the first few verses here, because this is going to spell this out a little bit clearer um, to make sense of, of the context. Isaiah 46, verse 1 and 2. The text should say something like this. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops, both Bel and Nebo are Babylonian false gods. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together, they cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Now, Bel and Nebo are personal names of Babylonian gods at that time. Isaiah is addressing very specific contextual gods for the Babylonians. Not to be confused with the Canaanite god Baal, it's different. Bel was associated with the Babylonian god Marduk. Here, Illumina, Illuma and Elish are the Babylonian creation myths from the ancient Near East that talk about the, gar, the gods Bel and Marduk. Uh, Bel was the god of the sun. Nebo was the god of learning, astrology, and writing in the Babylonian religion and culture. I want you to pay special attention to the verbs, though, in Isaiah as this is fleshed out. Because in verse 1, it'll say the first verb is bow down. The second verb is stoops. In verse 2, the order is reversed. The first verb there is stoops, and the second verb is bow down. There's a wordplay going on in Hebrew there. Both verbs sound very similar when you would pronounce them. It's an assonance. It's very memorable. Isaiah is drawing our attention to these actions uh, so we can bring out their significance. Isaiah was, he was simply pointing out the obvious in this culture. Babylonians were carrying their gods. They put them on horseback. They put them on their beasts of burden as they went off into captivity back to Babylon. Their gods were carried by their livestock. 
As worshipers now, the Babylonians were the ones that were bowing down and stooping to their false idols. People bowed down and worshiped these idols. Ironically, Isaiah says, the idols themselves are now bowing down and being carried by people. I want you to listen to the drastic difference that you have in the next, next few verses of Isaiah. Look down at uh, chapter 46, at uh, verses 3 and 4 here. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even from your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, I will bear, I will carry, and I will save. Christianity can be distinguished from every other religion on the planet by one question. Who is carrying whom? Christianity can be distinguished from every other religion on the planet by one simple question. Who is carrying whom? In every other religion, the worshiper carries the weight of his or her God. In every other religion, the worshiper is trying to earn the favor of the God, is trying to do enough to please the God or appease the God. The worshiper carries their God from place to place. Christianity is the only religion where the leader and the Savior says, you cannot carry me. Only I can carry you, and I will give you rest if you will lay your weary burdens down. The Babylonians have idols. They're carrying these idols. The context of, of chapter 2 brings this out in Habakkuk. Turn back to uh, Habakkuk now so we can see this a little bit clearer. Verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Did you notice how that started with a contrasting conjunction? But the Lord. The Lord is different than all the other false gods. The Lord is different than all the other idols and the idol worshipers that we're seeing depicted in here from Babylon. First, the Lord is in his holy temple. Wherever the presence of the Lord God is, there his holiness resides. God's holiness makes him distinct, unique, from everything else that is common or secular. God's holiness means that he is set apart. He is unlike anything or anyone that exists. In this context, he is unlike any other God that is a man-made contraption to be served, worshiped, or bowed down to. The Lord is holy. He is different than every other false God. He is not an idol. The second phrase says, let all the earth keep silence before him. And that's an interesting phrase that we have in the ESV. It's a, it's a very choppy translation to read when you look at it in the Hebrew. The verb keep silence, it's called an onomatopoeia. As you study scripture, it's a word that sounds like how you pronounce it. If you would say the, the word buzz is the sound that a bee makes when it flies by. In, in essence, Habakkuk is saying, shh, the Lord is in his holy temple. Hush, be silent before him. And this is a fitting conclusion for chapter 2, isn't it? 
is at the beginning of the prophet Habakkuk, remember, he was the one with all these questions for God. He was loaded with questions. He demanded answers from God. And he wanted his answers right then, and he stationed himself until he got the answers that he wanted. Now, all of a sudden, Habakkuk is singing a different verse of the same song. Now he's saying, I don't need anything else answered. I just need to be quiet before God, and I need to wait for him to work. God provided answers for Habakkuk that stopped his mouth and stationed his heart upon the plan, the purposes, and the progress of what he was doing in the nations and across the world for his glory. Habakkuk's faith was strengthened, but it wasn't because of Habakkuk. Let me give you a quick illustration. If I was uh, walking on a, on a camping trail and Ted Miller just decided, you know what, I've heard enough from this preacher from Wisconsin, I'm going to push him over the ledge. And he pushes me over the ledge. And out of desperation, as I'm falling down the ledge of this steep cliff, I see this little tiny sprig coming out of the rocks. And I grab up and I hang on to it. Just a little tiny thing. And I'm convinced that no matter how hard I try, no matter how tight my grip is, I'm eventually going down that cliff. Miracle of all miracles happens. That little tiny sprig holds me up on that cliff. And I'm able to get my grip find a foothold, and I get back on top of the trail. And me and Ted have words about him tossing me over that cliff. I want you to imagine now it's the next day, and, and Ted said, well, that didn't work very good. I got to get rid of this preacher again. I'm going to try it all over. And so there's a different part of the, of the trail that he pushes me over. There's not a tiny sprig there to hold on to. I go over the ledge as Ted pushes me. Instead, I see this huge tree it's on my way down as I'm falling, and I could just grab onto this massive branch. And so I, I find this massive branch, and I'm, and I'm swinging. I'm totally cool as a cucumber. That little tiny twig kept me up, and I had very little faith. Now I've got this huge, massive tree branch that's holding me up. I've got all kinds of faith in the world. My faith is great. Lo and behold, that massive tree branch snaps, and I go tumbling 15, 20 feet below. In one situation, my faith is tiny, minimal. Barely believe that that little tiny sprig could hold me up, but it did. In the other situation, my faith was great. It was massive. I didn't have any, any doubts that that massive tree, tree branch was going to hold me up, but it didn't. It wasn't, wasn't the size of my faith that mattered either time. It was the object of my faith that mattered the most. The strength of my faith was totally dependent not upon me, but upon the object of my faith instead. Habakkuk had little faith at the beginning. At the end of the book, his faith is strong, but it's not because of Habakkuk. It's because of the object of his faith. It's because of who his faith is in He's learning about the character of God, his promises, his purposes. And as he learns more about God, his faith is growing and expanding to epic proportions that he has never experienced before. It doesn't, God will honor the smallest, the tiniest mustard seed strength of faith. And that's good enough for him because our faith isn't in us, our faith is in God. 
The strength of the object is what matters the most. And you see the strength that Habakkuk has in his God that's increasing in this context. Uh, look down at chapter 3, the first couple of verses. Number one is the strength of his faith. Number two is the step of faith. Habakkuk 3, verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. Uh, there's only one other psalm, Psalm 7, that has that term, Shigianoth. Probably something like um, according to the stringed instruments. This is, would have been something for the, the choir masters, the, the people performing these songs um, to understand as they were, as they were performing the song and uh, playing it, reading it. Verse 2, O Lord, I have heard the report of you. In your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. You might pay special attention to this last phrase in verse 2. In wrath, remember mercy. I want you to think about something for a second. Jesus told parables in his ministry primarily to three groups of people. Remember, Jesus spoke a parable. Sometimes he was with his disciples alone. Uh, take those ones off the record for a second. Most of his parables were spoken to three groups of people. Disciples, the crowd, and the religious leaders, the Pharisees or the Sadducees. And the very same parable can be told in a way that impacted those three different people differently. They responded differently. When Jesus told his parables to the disciples, the disciples largely were encouraged and their faith was growing as Jesus describes the kingdom of God and our need to trust in him as believers. He told the same exact parable to the crowd, and the crowd was convicted to make a decision about Jesus. You can't stay on the top of this fence. You're going to have to decide one way or the other. Do you believe in him? Is he man? Is he fully God? Or do you not? Make your choice now. There is no time to delay. The third group of people he told parables to was the religious leaders. When they heard Jesus' parables... It was totally different than the other two groups. When they heard Jesus' parables, they hated him even more because the parables judged and condemned them. So you had one single story, three different people, three different responses to those stories. It's one of the great uh, richness and, and the reasons why Jesus used parables so effectively in his ministry. Uh, I regard Martin Luther's theology of the cross as one of the most course-altering, life-shattering theology contributions that we have in the history of the church. And in it, Luther makes a very similar understanding that we just spoke about concerning the parables of Jesus in regards to the wrath of God. And he says that you can understand the wrath of God in two drastically different ways, depending on how you respond to it. Luther said some people will suffer and they will see the wrath of God as a malicious, uncaring, vengeful God just pouring out his wrath upon innocent people. Other people will go through times of suffering and they will see God's mercy in a different light when they experience something of the wrath of God. And so the theology of the cross proposes two different kinds of wrath. Luther calls it the wrath of severity and the wrath of mercy. The difference between those two kinds of wrath, again, is 
how you respond to it. The unrepentant hears the wrath of severity. They hear nothing but condemnation and judgment. But the repentant, when they experience suffering and the wrath of God, they turn to God in repentance and faith instead. The wrath of God and suffering difficulties in life, they're intended to move us to humility and move us to faith. And Luther says this, apart from suffering, we would never realize the seriousness of our predicament. Apart from experience, experiencing something of the wrath of God, you and I would never realize the seriousness of our predicament apart from Christ. Apart from me moving 750 miles away from my home, from everybody I knew, from my identity, my significance, my relationships, my family, I would never realize the seriousness of my predicament. It humbled me, brought me to a place of repentant faith. Do you know any other moment in the Bible where you see the wrath of God perfectly married up to the mercy of God? Can you think of any other instance where you see the Father's wrath coupled with mercy at the cross of Jesus Christ working together? In fact, I would say that you can't understand God's wrath apart from his love and his mercy. Otherwise, your understanding of that wrath is not a biblical understanding of it. Verses 1 and 2 contain the only petition in the entire prayer of chapter 3 in Habakkuk, and it's a threefold petition. God asked, or Habakkuk asked God to preserve his life, to provide understanding, and to remember mercy. The rest of this prayer is a completely different tone. It's going to take on a completely different meaning. Verse 2 says this, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, revive it. He prays for God to revive his work in his day. God did something in the past. There was a report that Habakkuk knew of it, and he wanted to do something for him in the future to make it known again. And God was working. But I want you to notice what Habakkuk is not asking for in this context. The prophet does not ask for a mystical experience to understand what's going on at his time. The prophet does not ask for a feeling. He doesn't ask for a, a, this gut recognition. This is going to bring him peace and understanding. His confidence, his prayer, his faith, his step of faith, is all based on what God has done in the past. Not anything that he's giving to him right now in the present. He's looking back at Israel's history. He's seeing the Exodus. He's seeing deliverance. He's seeing all the times that God has intervened for his people when they had nowhere to go and no place to turn. He sees mercy. He sees grace. He sees forgiveness. He sees restoration over and over again. And he says, God, you have done this in the past. Now work in the same way for us right now and in the future. And listen, I don't... I don't know any, I know some of you and what you're going through right now. And I know there's a lot of people in this room that are going through some really tough times. And I know there's plenty of people that are suffering. People have said there's, 
There's two types of people in the world, those who are in the midst of a great trial and those who are about to go into one, right? But I do want you to know this, especially as we look at the book of Habakkuk, and it's something that one of my seminary professors told me at DTS that is, man, it is stuck with me. And it's very simple. He says this, what God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what he will do in the future. Though he is too creative to do the same thing in the same way twice. Habakkuk knows this, and he is clinging to this hope and to this promise. What God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what he will do in the future. Though he is too creative to do the same thing, in the same way twice. Habakkuk is being encouraged to take this step of faith based on what he knows about how God has acted in history, what he knows about his work from the past, and he is holding on tightly to it. you got the strength of faith. You've got a step of faith from Habakkuk. Now we have a stretch of faith in verse 3. Look down at at verse 3 here. God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. We'll talk about those places in a second. His splendor covered the heavens. And I want you to pay close attention to the tense of the verbs as we read through this. The tenses. His splendor covered the heavens. The earth was full of his praise. Verse 4, his brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand. There he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and he measured the earth. He looked and he shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. The first two lines back in verse 3 are parallel. God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. Those are two parallel statements. Now, Taman is a literal place southeast of Judah in the area in and around Edom. In fact, many scholars think that Taman was a, uh, a summary description of the entire area of Edom at that time. But just think southeast of Judah. There was a crossroads there, a major trade route. If you were going to come up through the land of Israel, coming from the southeast, you were going to go through the area of Taman to get through there. Paran, on the other hand, was a mountainous region. It was also south of Judah, but it was west instead of east. It was the Sinai Peninsula area. This is the area that most people would suggest that um, Kadesh Barnea is in the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. When the people, the Hebrews, came up out of the wilderness, they came through this area of Paran. Together, these two areas, Edom, Taman, and Paran, this mountain area, together they refer to God's coming from the south in the past. Scholars believe that when the Hebrew slaves came up from Egypt, they'd have taken this route from the south, going into the promised land that God had called them to and given to them. He led Israel out of Egypt through the same path. Habakkuk prays for the same path again. 
What God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what he will do in the future, though he is too creative to do the same thing in the same way twice. Look down at verse 3. God came from Taman, Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens. The earth was full of his praise. You got heavens on the one hand above and earth on the other hand below. This is a Hebrew merism. It's two opposite opposing things that describe the whole. The poem is saying that God's splendor, his majesty, and his glory covered the entire universe from the heavens above to the earth below. God's glory was on the move. His majesty, his presence was coming for his people to rescue them. Have you heard of this hymn before? Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. When at the cross my Savior made me whole. Heaven came down through the person of Jesus to fill our souls with the glory of God, to take us up to him with a glorious relationship that we could never have without him. Now heaven was coming down again in the Old Testament to rescue his people with the glory, the majesty, and the presence of God. Look down at verse 4. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. You've got God depicted kind of like Mount Sinai, thunder, lightning, trumpet sounds, but yet this thick cloud that veiled his glory because otherwise none of us could stand before the awesome power and the glory of God. His power needed to be veiled. In verse 5, you've got references to pestilence and plagues, images of God's redemption from Egypt. Remember, God did all those things in Egypt that Pharaoh and the Egyptians might know that he is the Lord. You go back and read Exodus chapter 7 all the way through chapter 12, and there's this constant refrain. I read it exactly seven times in those few chapters that the Egyptians might know that I am the Lord their God, that the Egyptians might know that I am the Lord over all of the earth. Pharaoh specifically had more opportunities to turn to God than probably anybody else at the time of the plagues and the pestilence that Egypt was experiencing in the Exodus. Plague and pestilence in the Old Testament are also words associated mostly with warfare. When God moves in warlike fashion for his people, Plagues and pestilence come with him. We're going to see that again at the end of days before a great and mighty battle of the Lord to defeat evil once and for all and to set up his kingdom forever and ever. God was coming, but his armies were coming with him. He was coming for battle in the Old Testament, which is again a pretty hopeful thing for the Israelites who were facing a stronger army than they, right in the face, the Babylonians. Verse 7 talks about the eternal mountains and the everlasting hills. Mountains and hills in the Bible are often symbolic of, of strength, immovable objects, permanence. Although they appear as age old, the everlasting God is older still. He is more everlasting. He, in fact, is the everlasting one. So, it's story time. Once upon a time, there was an insignificant, oppressed, and hopeless people. And a great, strong, and mighty nation came upon them called the Egyptians. 
And they took these oppressed Hebrews that had no nation, no land, no significance of their own, and they made them their slaves. And for 400 years in the land of Egypt, they built huge structures and made mud bricks. They forced the Hebrew wives to uh, kill all the Hebrew boys, only let the females, only let the, the girls survive. And they oppressed them with strict labor, made them sweat day in and day out to build their empire, to build their kingdom. They used slavery and their power over them to do what the, to them what they wanted to do, and nobody was going to stop them. And all of a sudden, this, this guy named Moses, who means, his name means drawn out. Moses comes along, and he, God uses him to draw the people out from slavery. He liberates and he rescues these hopeless Hebrews. Not because of anything that they had done, but simply by the sheer might and the power of God. And when they were escaped from the land of Egypt, they were faced with a Red Sea that was in front of them and, and Pharaoh's chariots and armies behind them. God said, don't do anything, just stand there and watch. He split the waters. Of course, Pharaoh's army followed after them and the waters just took them all and, and annihilated his army in one fell swoop. None of the Hebrews had a weapon on them. None of them were ready for battle, trained for battle, or even stationed that way. Yet God conquered their enemies, delivered them, brought them redemption in a way that they will never forget. Along 500 years, 800 years later, you've got an Assyrian empire that comes upon Israel in the very same way. And now here at the time of Habakkuk, it's the Babylonians. They come along and they oppress the people of Judah and Israel. Almost the exact same way that they were oppressed by Egypt in the past, the Babylonians make them their slaves to build their evil empire, to do with them what they want them to do simply because they have the power to do it. God appears and he speaks to Habakkuk and he says, remember all the things that happened in the past? It'll happen again. Just wait for it. It'll happen again. Seventy years after captivity in Babylon, God raises up another kingdom. He defeats the Babylonians and he frees the Israelites. He tells them that they can go back to their homeland and rebuild their temple, establish their king, reinstitute their sacrifices, do the things that God has called them to do as his people, and he redeemed them once again. Years and years after that, we find ourselves in a, in a predicament across all humanity, all of us, have been oppressed and enslaved by a tyrant. He goes by the name of Satan. He wreaks havoc on us simply because he has the power to do so. Every one of us is born into this world making mud bricks for Satan, his world, and his empire. No significance and no meaning in life. God has promised, what I have done in the past, I will do in the future, though I'm too creative to do the same thing in the same way twice. Another liberator emerges, not Moses this time who draws his people out. This time it's Jesus who will save the people from their sins. He overcomes the stronger one, liberates those. Captured, hopeless in their sin, ushers them into redemption, restoration, and victory. One day he will defeat sin and death forever. 
He will establish his kingdom on this earth, and his glory will cover the world like waters cover the sea. Ancient story told over and over and over again. I want you to pay really specific attention to something in in Habakkuk chapter 3. All your verb tenses, go back and read through those really quick. What are you looking at? Past, present, or future? Some of your translations might be a little bit different. God came from Timon, it's past tense. His splendor covered the heavens, past tense. The earth was, was full, past tense. Flashed, past tense. Veiled, past tense. Verse 5, went, pestilence, past tense. Plague followed, past tense. At his heels, he stood, past tense. Measured, past tense. All you guys got past tenses there? Translators are, are really um, perplexed by this passage. In Hebrew, all those tenses are actually present when you read them. And so we're faced with an issue as we translate this text. You, you translate them as a gnomic, they call it a gnomic past tense, which means it's written in a present tense, but it has a past tense function in Hebrew poetry. Or do you keep them in present tense instead and just deal with what the text says? So go back up to verse 3. God is coming. His splendor covers the heavens. The earth is full of his praise. His brightness is like the light. Rays are flashing from his hands. He is veiling his power. Verse 5. Before him goes pestilence, plagues, follows at his heels. What would... What would that mean for the Israelites to read that in the present tense? Would it be significant for them? What God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what he will do in the future, though he's too creative to do the same thing in the same way twice. A couple points of application. God has revealed himself. And it is the task of the theologian to concern himself with God as he has chosen to reveal himself, instead of constructing preconceived notions of God, which must ultimately be destroyed. God has revealed himself. Our task is to understand God as he has revealed himself, rather than our preconceived notions of what we want or desire God to be like. Oftentimes, as Christians, especially when we suffer and go through tough times, we have these ideas or thoughts of God that are not true to Scripture. They depict him much more like Santa Claus or a divine grandfather, always doting and making grandkids happy. The hard part is we slip into this tendency of, of thinking about God, how he has never intended us to think about him when we suffer. And so one of the points of application for Habakkuk is this. God will not protect you from that which he will perfect you through. God will not protect you from that which he will perfect you through. When you go through times of suffering, America, personally, nations, God is doing something through that. He is perfecting you into his image. He is making you more and more like him. But in order to do that, he's got to get rid of all this stuff that we call dependence, self-reliance, 
independence, autonomy, all the things that we look to to save ourselves and to, to think that we actually have control and power over what happens to us in life, that we can save ourselves. He has to empty us of all of those things before he can bring us to renewal and do something completely different. God has revealed himself. That our task is to concern ourselves with God as he has chosen to reveal himself and to understand and to trust him better. He will not protect you from that which he will perfect you through. Number two, the revelation of who God is can only be discerned by eyes of faith, not reason. The revelation of who God is can only be determined by the eyes of faith and not reason. God is revealed in the passion of the cross of Jesus, but he is not immediately recognizable as God upon the cross. Instead, he's recognizable as a man from Nazareth, a criminal, being overcome by the power of Rome and the Roman Empire. Remember Philip in John chapter 14? He's got this request of Jesus. He says, Jesus, I see what you're doing and I hear what you're saying. If all of this is true, show me the Father. Show me the Father, Jesus. Remember what Jesus said to him? He who has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. True theology and true knowledge of God are found in Christ and Christ crucified. True theology and true knowledge of God are found in Christ, in Christ crucified. Therefore, if you want to know God as he has revealed himself, you must know him personally and relationally for yourself. Our God has revealed himself in a way that makes him unrecognizable as the God of the universe. And yet it's at the very cross of Christ where we come to personally and relationally know him as we have never known him before. These are the lessons that Habakkuk is learning about God. We're going to read more about them as we finish chapter 3. I want to encourage you to come back next two Sundays. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, again, we love you. Thank you for who you are. We thank you that... Um, Lord, in the midst of, of suffering, in the midst of difficulties and tough times, that you have a providential plan for us that is so, so much bigger and grander than anything that we could think or imagine. Father, thank you for one prophet's life as he was going through a time of suffering, he saw the providence I thank you in my life as I went through a time of suffering, you showed me a plan of your providence thank you that you have a plan not only for me and for everybody else who's sitting in this room, but also that you have a plan for the nations. You have a plan for your glory. History is going somewhere. It is not circular. It is not destined to repeat itself. It is linear. It has a beginning, a middle, and end. Lord, we pray, we pray that you would haste the day of your return, that our faith might be sight. 
We pray that you would revive your work of old, that you would do for us what you have done in the past, redeeming, restoring, forgiving people who have sinned against you. We thank you that we can look to this and see that what you have done in the past is a model and a promise for us. Help that to build our faith, Lord, in you. Use that and cause us to hold you that much tighter and love you that much stronger and believe in you that much more. We ask this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God and there is no God besides you. Amen.